Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading A Journey to the Centre of the Earth, chapters 32 and 33, by Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers made a swift escape from the monster of the Great Internal Sea. In tonight's story, Harry, Hans and the Professor brace themselves for a change in the weather. If you haven't already, find yourself a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 32 The Battle of the Elements Friday, August 21st This morning, the magnificent geyser had wholly disappeared. The wind had freshened up, and we were fast leaving the neighbourhood of Henry's Island. Even the roaring sound of the mighty column was lost to the ear. The weather, if, under the circumstances, we may use such an expression, is about to change very suddenly. The atmosphere is being gradually loaded with vapours, which carry with them the electricity formed by the constant evaporation of the saline waters. The clouds are slowly but sensibly falling towards the sea, and are assuming a dark olive texture, and the electric rays can scarcely pierce through the opaque curtain which has fallen like a drop scene before this wondrous theatre, on the stage of which another and terrible drama is soon to be enacted. This time is no fight of animals, it is the fearful battle of the elements. I feel that I am very peculiarly influenced, as all creatures are on land when a deluge is about to take place. The cumuli, a perfectly oval kind of cloud, piled upon the south, presented a most awful and sinister appearance, with the pitiless aspect often seen before a storm. 
The air is extremely heavy. The sea is comparatively calm. In the distance, the clouds have assumed the appearance of enormous balls of cotton, or rather pods, piled one above the other in picturesque confusion. By degrees, they appear to swell out, break, and gain in number what they lose in grandeur. Their heaviness is so great that they are unable to lift themselves from the horizon, but under the influence of the upper currents of air, they are gradually broken up, become much darker, and then present the appearance of one single layer of formidable character. Now and then, a lighter cloud, still lit up from above, rebounds upon the grey carpet and is lost in the opaque mess. There can be no doubt that the entire atmosphere is saturated with electric fluid. I am myself wholly impregnated. My hairs literally stand on end, as if under the influence of a galvanic battery. If one of my companions ventures to touch me, I think he would receive rather a violent and unpleasant shock. About ten o'clock in the morning, the symptoms of the storm became more thorough and decisive. The wind appeared to soften down, as if to take breath for a renewed attack. The vast funeral pall above us looked like a huge bag, like the cave of Elouis, in which the storm was collecting in force for the attack. I tried all I could not to believe in the menacing signs of the sky, and yet I could not avoid saying, as it were involuntarily, I believe we're going to have bad weather. The professor made me no answer. He was in a horrible, in a detestable humour, to see the ocean stretching indeterminately before his eyes. On hearing my words, he simply shrugged his shoulders. We shall have a tremendous storm, I said again, pointing to the horizon. These clouds are falling lower and lower upon the sea, as if to crush it. A great silence prevailed. The wind wholly ceased. Nature assumed a dead calm and ceased to breathe. Upon the mast, where I noticed a sort of slight ignis fatus, the sail hangs in loose, heavy folds. The raft is motionless in the midst of a dark, heavy sea, without undulation, without motion. It is as still as glass, but as we are making no progress, what is the use of keeping up the sail? which may be the cause of our perdition if the tempest should suddenly strike us without warning. Let us lower the sail, I said. It is only an act of common prudence. No, no, cried my uncle in an exasperated tone. A hundred times no. Let the wind strike us and do its worst. Let the storm sweep us away where it will. Only let me see the glimmer of some coast, of some rocky cliffs, even if they dash our raft into a thousand pieces. No, keep up the sail, no matter what happens. These words were scarcely uttered when the southern horizon underwent a sudden and violent change. The long accumulated vapours were resolved into water 
and the air required to fill up the void produced became a wild and raging tempest. It came from the most distant corners of the mighty cavern. It raged from every point of the compass. It roared. It yelled. It shrieked with glee as of demons let loose. The darkness increased and became indeed darkness visible. The raft rose and fell with the storm and bounded over the waves. My uncle was cast headlong upon the deck. I, with great difficulty, dragged myself towards him. He was holding on with might and main to the end of the cable, and appeared to gaze with pleasure and delight at the spectacle of the unchained elements. Hans never moved a muscle, his long hair driven hither and thither by the tempest and scattered wildly over the motionless face, gave him a most extraordinary appearance, for every single hair was illuminated with little sparkling sprigs. His countenance presents the extraordinary appearance of an antediluvian man, a true contemporary of the Megatherium. Still the mast holds good against the storm. The sail spreads out and fills like a soap bubble about to burst. The raft rushes on a pace impossible to estimate, but still less swiftly than the body of water displaced beneath it, the rapidity of which may be seen by the lines which fly right and left of the wake. The sail, the sail, I cried, making a trumpet of my hand and then endeavouring to lower it. Let it alone, said my uncle, more exasperated than ever. Nay, said Hans, gently shaking his head. Nevertheless, the rain formed a roaring cataract before this horizon of which we were in search, and to which we were rushing like madmen. But before this wilderness of waters reached us, the mighty veil of cloud was torn in twain, the sea began to foam wildly, and the electricity, produced by some vast and extraordinary chemical action in the upper layer of the cloud, is brought into play. To the fearful clap of thunder are added dazzling flashes of lightning, such as I have never seen. The flashes crossed one another, hurled from every side while the thunder came pealing like an echo. The mass of vapour becomes incandescent. The hailstones which strike the metal of our boots and our weapons are actually luminous. The waves as they rise appear to be fire-eating monsters, beneath which seethes the intense fire, their crests surmounted by cones of flame. My eyes are dazzled blinded by the intensity of light, my ears are deafened by the awful roar of the elements. I am compelled to hold on to the mast, which bends like a reed beneath the violent storm, to which none ever before seen by mariners bore any resemblance. Here my travelling notes become very incomplete, loose and vague. I have only been able to make out one or two fugitive observations, jotted down in a mere mechanical way, but even their brevity, even their obscurity, show the emotions which overcame me. 
Sunday, August 23rd. Where have we got to? In what region are we wandering? We are still carried forward with inconceivable rapidity. The night has been fearful, something not to be described. The storm shows no signs of cessation. We exist in the midst of an uproar which has no name. The detonations as of artillery are incessant. Our ears literally bleed. We are unable to exchange a word or hear each other speak. The lightning never ceases to flash for a single instant. I can see the zigzags after a rapid dart strike the arched roof of this mightiest of mighty vaults. If it were to give way and fall upon us, other lightnings plunge their forked streaks in every direction and take form of globes of fire which explode like bombshells over a beleaguered city. The general crash and roar do not apparently increase. It has already gone far beyond what human ears can appreciate. If all the powder magazines in the world were to explode together, it would be impossible for us to hear worse noise. There is a constant emission of light from the storm clouds. The electric matter is incessantly released. Evidently, the gaseous principles of the air are out of order. Innumerable columns of water rush up like water spouts and fall back upon the surface of the ocean in foam. Whither are we going? My uncle still lies at full length upon the raft without speaking, without taking any note of time. The heat increases. I look at the thermometer. To my surprise, it indicates. The exact figure is here rubbed out in my manuscript. Monday, August 24th. This terrible storm will never end. Why should not this state of the atmosphere, so dense and murky, once modified again, remain definitive? We are utterly broken and harassed by the fatigue. Hans remains just as usual. The raft runs to the southeast invariably. We have now already run 200 leagues from the newly discovered island. About 12 o'clock, the storm became worse than ever. We are obliged now to fasten every bit of cargo tightly on the deck of the raft, or everything would be swept away. We make ourselves fast too, each man lashing the other, the waves driving over us so that several times we are actually underwater. We've been under the painful necessity of abstaining from speech for three days and three nights. We opened our mouths, we moved our lips, but no sound came. Even when we placed our mouths to each other's ears, it was the same. The wind carried the voice away. My uncle once contrived to get his head close to mine after several almost vain endeavours. He appeared to my nearly exhausted senses to articulate some word. I had a notion more from intuition than anything else, that he said to me, we are lost. I took out my notebook, from which under the most desperate circumstances I never parted, and wrote a few words 
as lazily as I could. Take in sail. With a deep sigh, he nodded his head and requested. His head had scarcely time to fall back into the position from which he had momentarily raised it, and then a disc or ball of fire appeared on the very edge of the raft, our devoted, our doomed craft. The mast and sail were carried away boldly, and I see them swept away to a prodigious height like a kite. We were frozen, actually shivered with terror. The ball of fire, half white, half azure coloured, about the size of a ten-inch bombshell, moved along, turning with prodigious rapidity to leeward of the storm. It ran about here, there, and everywhere. It clambered up one of the bulkwoods of the raft and leaped upon the sack of provisions, and then finally descended lightly, fell like a football, and landed on our powder barrel. Horrible situation. An explosion, of course, was now inevitable. My heaven's mercy, it was not so. The dazzling disc moved on one side. It approached Hans, who looked at it with singular fixity. Then it approached my uncle, who cast himself on his knees to avoid it. It came towards me, as I stood pale and shuddering in the dazzling light and heat. It pirouetted round my feet, which I endeavoured to withdraw. An odour of nitrous gas filled the whole air. It penetrated to the throat, to the lungs. I felt ready to choke. Why is it that I cannot withdraw my feet? Are they riveted to the floor of the raft? No. The fall of the electric globe has turned all the iron on board into lodestone. The instruments, the tools, the arms are clanging together with awful and horrible noise. The nails of my heavy boots adhere closely to the plate of iron encrusted in the wood. I cannot withdraw my foot. It is the old story again of the mountain of adamant. At last, by a violent and almost superhuman effort, I tear it away just as the ball which is still executing its gyratory motions is about to run about and drag me off with it. If, oh, what intense, stupendous light, the globe of fire bursts. We are enveloped in cascades of living fire, which flood the space around us with luminous matter. Then all went out, and darkness once more fell upon the deep. I had just time to see my uncle once more, cast apparently senseless on the floor of the raft, hands at the helm, spitting fire under the influence of the electricity which seemed to have gone through him. Whither are we going? I asked, and Echo answered, Whither? Tuesday, August 25th. I have just come out of a long, fainting fit. The awful and hideous storm still continues. The lightning has increased in vividness and pours out its fiery wrath like a brood of serpents let loose in the atmosphere. Are we still upon the sea? Yes, and being carried along with incredible velocity. We have passed under England, under the channel, 
under France, probably under the whole extent of Europe. Another awful clamour in the distance. This time, it is certain that the sea is breaking upon the rocks at no great distance. Then... Chapter 33 Our Route Reversed Here ends what I call my journal of our voyage on board the raft, which journal was happily saved from the wreck. I proceed with my narrative as I did before I commenced my daily notes. What happened when the terrible shock took place, when the raft was cast upon the rocky shore? It would be impossible for me now to say. I felt myself precipitated violently into the boiling waves, and I escaped from a certain and cruel death. It was wholly owing to the determination of the faithful Hans, who, clutching me by the arm, saved me from yawning abyss. The courageous Icelander then carried me in his powerful arms, far out of the reach of the waves, and lay me down upon the burning expanse of sand, where I found myself some time afterwards in the company of my uncle, the professor. Then he quietly returned towards the fetal rock, against which the furious waves were beating, in order to save any stray waifs from the wreck. This man was always practical and thoughtful. I could not utter a word. I was quite overcome with emotion. My whole body was broken and bruised with fatigue. It took hours before I was anything like myself. Meanwhile, there fell a fearful deluge of rain, drenching us to the skin. Its very violence, however, proclaimed the approaching end of the storm. Some overhanging rocks afforded us slight protection from the torrents. Under the shelter, Hans prepared some food, which, however, I was unable to touch, and, exhausted by the three weary days and nights of watching, we fell into a deep and painful sleep. My dreams were fearful, but at last exhausted nature asserted her supremacy, and I slumbered. Next day, when I awoke, the change was magical. The weather was magnificent. Air and sea, as if by mutual consent, had regained their serenity. Every trace of the storm, even the faintest, had disappeared. I was saluted on my awakening by the first joyous tones I had heard from the professor for many a day. His gaiety, indeed, was something terrible. Well, my lad, he cried rubbing his hands together. Have you slept soundly? Might it not have been supposed that we were in the old house on the Conistras, that I had just come down quietly to my breakfast, and that my marriage with Gretchen was to take place that very day? My uncle's coolness was exasperating. Alas, considering how the tempest had driven us in an easterly direction, we had passed under the whole of Germany, under the city of Hamburg, where I had been so happy, under the very street which contained all I loved and cared for in the world. 
It was a positive fact that I was only separated from her by a distance of forty leagues, but these forty leagues were of hard, impenetrable granite. All these dreary and miserable reflections passed through my mind before I attempted to answer my uncle's question. Why, what is the matter? he cried. Cannot you say whether you have slept well or not? I have slept very well, was my reply. But every bone in my body aches. I suppose that will lead to nothing. Nothing at all, my boy. It is only the result of the fatigue of the last few days. That is all. You appear, if I may be allowed to say so, to be very jolly this morning, I said. Delighted, my dear boy, delighted. Was never happier in my life. We have at last reached the wished-for port. The end of our expedition, cried I, in a tone of considerable surprise. No, but to the confines of that sea which I began to fear would never end, but go round the whole world. We will now tranquilly resume our journey by land, and once again endeavour to dive into the centre of the earth. My dear uncle, I began in a hesitating kind of way, allow me to ask you a question. Certainly, Harry, a dozen if you think proper. One will suffice. How about getting back? I asked. How about getting back? What a question to ask. We've not yet reached the end of our journey. I know that. All I want to know is how you propose we shall manage the return voyage. In the most simple manner in the world, said the imperturbable professor. Once we reach the exact center of the sphere, Either we shall find a new road by which to ascend to the surface, or we shall simply turn round and go back the way we came. I have every reason to believe that while we are travelling forward, it will not close behind us. Then one of the first matters to see to will be to repair the raft, was my rather melancholy response. Of course, we must attend to that above all things, continued the professor. Then comes the all-important question of provisions, I urged. Have we anything like enough left to enable us to accomplish such great, such amazing, designs as you contemplate carrying out? I have seen into the matter, and my answer is the affirmative. Hans is a very clever fellow, and I have reason to believe that he has saved the greater part of the cargo. But the best way to satisfy your scruples is to come and judge for yourself. Saying which, he led the way out of the kind of open grotto in which we had taken shelter. I'd almost begun to hope that which I should rather have feared, and this was the impossibility of such a shipwreck, leaving even the slightest sign of what it had carried as freight. I was, however, thoroughly mistaken. As soon as I reached the shores of this inland sea, I found Hans standing gravely in the midst of a large number of things laid out in complete order. My uncle wrung his hands with deep and silent gratitude. His heart was too full for speech. 
This man, whose superhuman devotion to his employers I not only never saw surpassed, nor even equaled, had been hard at work all this time we slept, and at the risk of his life, had succeeded in saving the most precious articles of our cargo. Of course, under the circumstances, we necessarily experienced severe losses. Our weapons had wholly vanished, but experience had taught us to do without them. The provision of powder had, however, remained intact after having narrowly escaped blowing us all up. Well, said the professor, who was now ready to make the best of everything. As we have no guns, all we have to do is to give up all ideas of hunting. Yes, my dear sir, we can do without them, but what about all our instruments? Here is the manometer, the most useful of all, and which I gladly accept in lieu of the rest. With it alone, I can calculate the depth as we proceed. With it alone, I should be able to decide when we have reached the center of the earth. Haha, <laughs> but for this little instrument, we might make a mistake and run the risk of coming out at the antipodes. All this was said amid bursts of unnatural laughter. But the compass, I cried, without that, what can we do? Here it is, safe and sound, he cried, with real joy. Ah, ah, and here we have the chronometer and the thermometers. Hans the hunter is indeed an invaluable man. It was impossible to deny this fact. As far as the nautical and other instruments were concerned, nothing was wanting. Then on further examination, I found ladders, cords, pickaxes, crowbars and shovels all scattered about us on the shore. There was, however, finally the most important question of all, and that was provisions. But what are we to do for food? I asked. Let us see the commissariat department, replied my uncle gravely. The boxes which contained our supply of food for the voyage were placed in a row along the strand, and were in a capital state of preservation. The sea had in every case respected their contents, and to sum it up in one sentence, taking into consideration biscuits, salt meat, schneiden, and dried fish, we could still calculate on having about four months' supply, if used with prudence and caution. Four months, cried the Sagune professor in high glee. Then we should have plenty of time both to go and to come, and with what remains, I undertake to give a grand dinner to my colleagues of the Jonum. I sighed. I should by this time have become used to the temperament of my uncle, and yet this man astonished me more and more every day. He was the greatest human enigma I ever known. Now, said he, before we do anything else, we must lay in a stock of fresh water. The rain has fallen in abundance and filled the hollows of the granite. There is a rich supply of water, and we have no fear of suffering from thirst, which in our circumstances is of the last importance. As for the raft, 
I shall recommend Hans to repair it to the best of his abilities, though I have every reason to believe we shall not require it again. How is that? I cried, more amazed than ever at my uncle's style of reasoning. I have an idea, my dear boy. It is none other than the simple fact we shall not come out of the same opening as that by which we entered. I began to look at my uncle with vague suspicion. An idea had more than once taken possession of me, and this was that he was going mad. And yet, little did I think how true and how prophetic his words were doomed to be. And now, he said, having seen to all these matters of detail, to breakfast. I followed him to a sort of projecting cape after he had given his last instructions to our guide. In this original position, with dried meat, biscuits, and a delicious cup of tea, we made a satisfactory meal. I may say one of the most welcome and pleasant I ever remember. Exhaustion, the keen atmosphere, the state of calm after so much agitation, all contributed to give me an excellent appetite. Indeed, it contributed very much to producing a pleasant and cheerful state of mind. And between the sips of warm tea, I asked my uncle if he had any idea of how we now stood in relation to the world above. For my part, I added, I think we will be rather difficult to determine. Well, if we were compelled to fix to the exact spot, said my uncle, it might be difficult, since during the three days of that awful tempest, I could keep no account either of the quickness of our pace, or of the direction of which the raft was going. Still, we will endeavour to approximate the truth. We shall not, I believe, be so very far out. Well, if I recollect rightly, I replied, our last observation was made at the Geyser Island. Harry's Island, my boy, Harry's Island. Do not decline the honour of having named it, given your name to an island discovered by us, the first human beings who trod it since the creation of the world. Let it be so then. At Harry's Island, we had already gone over 270 leagues of sea, and we were, I believe, about 600 leagues, more or less, from Iceland. Good. I'm glad to see that you remember so well. Let us start from that point, and let us count four days of storm, during which our rate of travelling must have been very great. I should say that our velocity must have been about 80 leagues to the 24 hours. I agreed that I thought this was a fair calculation. There were then 300 leagues to be added to the grand total. Yes, and the central sea must extend at least 600 leagues from side to side. Do you know, my boy, Harry, that we have discovered an inland lake larger than the Mediterranean? Certainly, and we only know of its extent in one way. It may be hundreds of miles in length. Very likely. Then, said I, after calculating for some minutes, if your provisions are right, 
we are at this moment exactly under the Mediterranean itself. Do you think so? Yes, I am almost certain of it. Are we not 900 leagues distance from Reykjavik? That is perfectly true, and a famous bit of road we have travelled, my boy. But why we should be under the Mediterranean more than under Turkey or the Atlantic Ocean can only be known when we are sure of not having deviated from our course, and of this we know nothing. I do not think we were driven very far from our course. The wind appears to me to have been always about the same. My opinion is that this shore must be situated to the southeast of Port Gretchen. Good, I hope so. It will, however, be easy to decide the matter by taking the bearings from our departure by means of our compass. Come along, and we will consult that invaluable invention. The professor now walked eagerly in the direction of the rock where the indefatigable hands had placed the instruments in safety. My uncle was gay and light-hearted. He rubbed his hands and assumed all sorts of attitudes. He was to all appearance once more a young man. Since I had known him, never had he been so amiable and pleasant. I followed him, rather curious to know where I had made any mistake in my estimation of our position. As soon as we had reached the rock, my uncle took the compass, placed it horizontally before him, and looked keenly at the needle. As he had at first shaken it to give it vivacity, it oscillated considerably, and then slowly assumed its right position under the influence of the magnetic power. The professor bent his eyes curiously over the wondrous instrument. A violent start immediately showed the extent of his emotion. He closed his eyes, rubbed them, and took another and keener survey. Then he turned slowly round to me, stupefaction depicted on his countenance. What is the matter? said I, beginning to be alarmed. He could not speak. He was too overwhelmed for words. He simply pointed to the instrument. I examined it eagerly according to his mute directions, and a loud cry of surprise escaped my lips. The needle of the compass pointed due north, in the direction we expected was south. It pointed to the shore instead of the high seas. I shook the compass. I examined it with a curious and anxious eye. It was in a state of perfection. No blemish in any way explained the phenomenon. Whatever position we forced the needle into, it returned invariably to the same unexpected position. It was useless attempting to conceal from ourselves the fatal truth. There could be no doubt about it, unwelcome as was the fact that during the tempest there had been a sudden slant of wind of which we had been unable to take any account, and thus the raft had carried us back to the shores we had left, apparently forever, so many days before.